right. John chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 13. While you're turning there, let me tell you a couple things about this passage. First of all, this is possibly one of my favorite passages in the Bible, which I know is strange. When you get into it tonight, you'll be like, wow. But here's part of the reason why. Because this shows us a side of Jesus that we don't think enough about. Let me illustrate it to you like this. There's a great passage in C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Lucy and Edmund are engaged in their adventure, and they come to a large, grassy expanse. There's all kinds of grass that goes off into the blue horizon, except for one white spot in the middle of all this green grass. Edmund and Lucy look at this spot intently. They have difficulty making out what it is, but being adventurous, they climb across the grass until they can see what it is, and it is a lamb, a pure white lamb that is cooking a fish breakfast. It's possible that C.S. Lewis, the author, had the imagery of the 21st chapter of John in mind when Jesus is there cooking a fish breakfast for his disciples. And clearly, the white lamb is a Christ figure. But while they are having that delicious breakfast that morning, something interesting happens. They begin to have a conversation about how to get to the land of Aslan, heaven. And as that lamb begins to explain the way, something marvelous happens. Lewis records it like this. His snowy white flushed into a tawny gold, and his size changed, and he was Aslan himself, towering above them with scattering light from his mane. And if you're familiar with the imagery from the Bible, what Lewis is clearly saying to us here is that lamb is also a lion. That white, spotless lamb is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lamb is the lion. And that's what this passage is about tonight. We are very familiar with Jesus meek and mild, but tonight you get to see Jesus strong and wild. You get to see the lamb revealed as the lion. Five points, but fear not. They are not all of equal length. Three are major, two are minor and the story begins to unfold in verse 13. Look at it. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, it's very important for us to understand this because we almost don't have a category for how they would have treated Passover. It's Christmas-ish in the way that they would have approached it, meaning that there was a lead-up, there was a lot that happened. Uh, it required an entire month of preparation. And during that time, the roads were repaired, the bridges were rebuilt or uh, shored up, the sepulchers were rewhitened, and the entire land was just buzzing with activity. Also in Jerusalem, not really a big city by ordinary standards, but it would have had possibly 250,000 people crowded into this little city during that time. So it was no surprise that Jesus went there after what we learned about two weeks ago, verse 14. But look what he found when he got there. 
In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. Now, this raises a couple questions for us. The first of us would probably be asking, okay, so why are there animals and why are there money changers there? Let's handle the animal piece first. In redemptive history, this was at the end of the sacrificial system. And just as a refresher, this was the system that God had set up to deal with sin up to that point. It didn't ultimately and finally deal with it, but all of the, land, of the animals that were killed, all of the grain offerings and other offerings that were made, they were, they were dealing with sin to a degree and were somewhat of a placeholder that clearly pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice that was coming, which was, of course, the Lord Jesus. You may also recall that the animals had to be of a certain blameless and spotless nature, and because that was the case, it was allowable for the animals to be purchased there on site. There was an entire cottage industry, if you want to think of it that way, that rose up around providing these animals. And then on top of that, in addition to providing the sacrifices, any male over age 19 was also required to pay a temple tax. And the money changers were there to exchange the foreign currency that they would bring in into the type of currency that was needed to pay the tax. So, in and of itself, not necessarily fundamentally a problem, but what they had done with this became a huge problem. And look what happens in verse 15 in response. And making a whip of cords, he, being Jesus, drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins and the, of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And then John gives us this editorial comment here in verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, let's try to visualize this together. Tons of people, got all these animals. You got the money changer people there. Jesus walks up. Doesn't seem to be much dialogue. He makes a whip and he starts driving everybody out. Now, this is so shocking for some people that they have come up with some bogus explanations of what actually happened. One guy, I don't even really want to read this, but let you, let you know what's out there, who basically said that Jesus made this little whip, but he didn't use it. Couldn't have used it. And I'm like, bro, a simple reading of the text seems to indicate that Jesus used it, and he used it masterfully. And I think part of what we need to see here is actually our first principle. And that is, this shows us that Jesus' character is beautifully multifaceted. Jesus' character is beautifully multifaceted. He is like a diamond. And when you turn it this way in this situation, you see these aspects of his character. And when it's in a different situation, you turn it this way and you see the light hit it. And the diamond shows even more beauty. That's part of what is happening in this passage. John is showing us the beautiful, multifaceted character of Jesus. But here's the thing. Some people in our day, even though this is as plain as day, they just don't like it. Let me read you this quote 
from the Preach the Word commentary. They said this, Even professing Christians sometimes reduce God to much less than He is. Many have made a valid attempt to, pre to prevent the, or to present rather, the humanity of Christ so men and women can see Him as a God who relates to them. But this attitude has sometimes been carried to the extreme. It has been so perverted that Jesus has been effectively and functionally emptied of his deity. For many, Christ has become a pop Jesus who lies back with his headphones in place reading Sports Illustrated. It's easy to fall into a flippancy of which an angel would never be guilty. The result is contemporary idolatry that at its core is a distortion of God into mental images that are man-made. Our irreverence reflects an idolatrous concept of God, and the flip phrase, the man upstairs, is an idolatrous statement born out of ignorance and a wrong understanding of God. The big man in the sky is not the God we worship. No wonder Jesus was so indignant about the irreverence that he saw. That's heavy. But I think that's pretty close to being accurate. So not only do we see the beautiful, multifaceted character of Jesus, but we also get to see the second point here, and that is that the worship of God really matters. It really matters. It's not willy-nilly. It's not an afterthought. It is a priority. And if you study Holy Scripture and you study church history from start to where we are now, this has always been a priority for Christians. Sundays matter. Listening to the Word, if you miss it, matters. Meeting in community with other Christians, it matters. Because the end game of all of those things is to expand at the worship of God and to propagate His gospel and to expand His kingdom. So Jesus was not simply triggered by some craziness he saw at the temple. He walked in and he saw that God's house was being perverted and defamed and his name was being maligned. And he said in his behavior and in his words, these things cannot be. Jesus, the lamb, is also the lion. Jesus, meek and mild, is also Jesus, strong and wild. Now let's think further about this concept here of why he was so upset about the temple. I'll give you this from the Christ-exalting commentary. Or excuse me, exalting Christ in John commentary. They said it like this. When the temple was first dedicated to God, the builder King Solomon called it an exalted temple for him, a place for God's dwelling forever. It's 1 Kings 8.13. At that dedication, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. That's verse 11 in chapter 8. And even though God isn't confined to the temple, the temple was a special place where he would meet with men. In this house, the men would come to worship him and sacrifices were offered to him. It was built to display his glory. But the sounds of confession were replaced with the sounds of commerce. Gone were the silent prayers of God. They had been exchanged with the angry chorus of men haggling over the price of bulls and sheep and the cooing of sacrificial doves. 
was now reserved for people arguing over money exchange. So when we think about how to bring this forward today, we got to get to the heart of what's really going on here. God's name, God's temple was being defamed. Worship had been replaced with flea market type activity. And it could not be. It would not stand. Now, beyond that, there was even something else that was going on. We already know from uh, history that authorities would tell us that the money changers charged as much as two hours of a working man's wage to change half a shekel. It's a very small amount of money. They charged the same amount again and again and again for every half shekel that they gave in return for a larger coin. So if a man came in with just a two-shekel piece, he would have to pay an entire day's wage just to change his money. And friends, this brought a lot of money into the temple. In fact, a few years before, when someone had robbed the temple, temple they took a basically what was $20 million, and it didn't even come close to taking out the funds that were there. And so this huge industry was basically built on the backs of the poor faithful. In addition to that, the animals that they were dealing with there, rabbinic literature tells us that the inspector spent 18 months on a farm to learn how to distinguish between clean and unclean animals. They even learned how to identify an animal that would one day become unclean, even if it was, it was, if it was clean that day. And this whole thing also had to do with this guy named Annas, he was the high priest at the time, who would basically sell, thinking in flea market terms, booths so that people could work their quote-unquote business out of there. But time after time after time, it was basically extorting the poor, which is our third point tonight, that God cares about how the poor are treated. He always has. From start to finish in the Bible, if you look and read across the grain of Scripture, you see that some of the biggest indictments against God's people in the Old Testament was because they were taking advantage of the poor. Now, in our day and age, can we have very significant disagreements on how that should happen? Absolutely. I think that both political parties and every other opinion in between, there's a lot of different things that can be said about this. But God's people should definitely agree that we need to help the poor in some way. We can't be indifferent to it. And that's one of the things that, one of the good things, so many bad things came out of the pandemic, but one of the good things is we as a church got to help a ton of people. We were able to keep, I kind of lost count at some point, but it was 10 or 15 families off the street at least for a period of time because of the generosity that God worked up within us. We need to care about the poor in all the different ways that we can. But because they didn't, it brought the whip of Jesus. It brought the lamb revealing himself as the lion. It brought the multifaceted character of Jesus to display. And now let's talk about verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now what's going on here? This is a cross-reference 
back to Psalm 69.9. It's the Psalm of David, which reads this. Because zeal for your house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult, uh, you, who insult you have fallen on me. And what's happening here is in this psalm, David is crying out in despair because of those who oppose him. And one of the major problems that he had with his opponents and they had with him was a failure to understand his commitment to the temple. When Martin Luther was talking about this, he, he, he pointed this out. He said the word consume in Greek means to be eaten up. And when he explained it to his flock, the way he said it was, you know how when something is eating you, that's what's happening here with Jesus. The zeal for his father's house was eating him. It was consuming him like a flame. And so when you see that and you see his behavior and you see what's going on here at the temple, that gives us our fourth point. And that is that John is telling us that Jesus is the true and better David the promised Messiah that would have zeal for and authority to cleanse his father's house. Both of those things are important. The zeal, the passion, the consuming nature, somebody must do something about this, that is intentional. It was to show those people and all of us who read today in that stead who Jesus was. The true and better David. The Messiah would have that kind of concern for the temple. But he would also have an authority to do something about it. Now, when Jesus calls God his father here, he is stressing the unique authority that he has to protect God's house. This is a one-off. You and I are children of God, but he is talking about himself as the son of God in a unique way, an exclusive way with authority to do what he can do. Now, they saw this, and when I said they, I mean the Jews, and they knew something was up, but they didn't know what exactly. Look at verse 18. So the Jews said to him, and remember, this is uh, John's shorthand for these people who would oppose him, the troublesome Jews, the leadership Jews, the Sanhedrin and their buddies Jews. And they said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, I think this is a little bit of an odd question. Because you would think it would be something like, hey, what's going on? Like, hey, cut it out. You know, like something from one of those 30s movies. Hey, guys, you can stop it here. But it wasn't any of that. They want to talk about a sign. And I think this shows us a couple of things. So they could somehow see that Jesus was different that he had an authority that other teachers did not have. But they are clearly missing the point, because you know what's missing here? Any sense of repentance on their part. Any sense that, hey, maybe we shouldn't be doing what has provoked Jesus to do this. So they both surmised that something was up and completely missed the point. I don't think this is a major point in the text, but I think that's something we need to be careful with. Because sometimes we can see truth spiritually and then completely miss the point. This is not really a problem in this church, but I've encountered this in some churches along the way where somebody hears really solid preaching and they're like, man, that'd be a great sermon for my brother to hear. 
Man, I just, I may, hey, hey, you hear that? You hear that? If it's great for your brother, guess who else it's great for? You. So we don't need to see, but not see. We need to pay attention. We need to not be like these folks. But they ask for this sign. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And again, they miss it. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. And then John clears it up for us in case we were too dense to get it. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So the fifth point here is that Jesus is the promised Messiah that would be both the sacrifice for sin and that he would rise again after his death. So when he takes this application about the temple, they're thinking it's the physical temple, and he says, no, the temple is my body. And then on top of that, that tells us something very significant about the gospel. There's at least two connections that we can make here between the temple and Jesus' body. First of all, the temple is where God meets man. Do you know how God meets man today? Through Christ. Do you know how we come into the presence of God today? Through the finished work of Jesus. This is a pointer to the gospel. You really, this is Jesus speaking here. You really want to see what happens? You really want to know how and why I have the authority to do this? When I'm killed and I rise again, I will show you. The resurrection is the ultimate authentication of Jesus' authority to cleanse the temple and to cleanse our lives. So God meets man through the temple of Jesus' body. Now, how about this? The temple is also where sacrifices were offered for sin. Friends, aren't you so thankful that we don't have to worry about grain offerings and animal offerings and all the other types of offerings that they had to offer so long ago? That there has been the ultimate offering that has been made for us once for all. Jesus fulfilled and finished the sacrificial system with his ultimate sacrifice. He was the temple for us. The pure and spotless lamb without blemish that then acts as the lion. So when we think about all this, there's a lot to take in. But let's go back and run through it just a little bit. Because I want to make sure we get it and we apply it in the way that will be the most helpful to us. Let's think about that first piece of truth that we have. That Jesus' character is beautifully multifaceted. I think a good question we could ask ourselves in light of that truth is something like this. What picture of Jesus do I have in my mind? Is it only Jesus meek and mild? Or does it also allow for Jesus' 
strong, and wild. Listen, he is meek and mild. He says that about himself in the Gospel of Matthew. But he also has the authority and the zeal to cleanse this temple and to cleanse our lives. Does our picture of Jesus account for both? Second thing we talked about, that God cares deeply about the way that he is worshipped. Is worship a priority for us? Sundays, after Sundays, do we organize our lives around the glory of God and the lifting up of Jesus? Oh, friends, anywhere that we don't, this is an opportunity for us to let God's kindness lead us to repentance and to reorg our lives tonight around that principle. How about the next one? that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the true and better David, and that he has the zeal for and authority to cleanse his father's house. I think an application for us there is to just be encouraged. To be encouraged that the Bible said that there was one who was coming, and he came just like he said he would. That there was to be this Messiah And page after page after page of this gospel show us that he came. Like David told us a couple of weeks ago, the gospel of John is the book of signs. And here we have this sign of the Messiah. And finally, what about this bit about the temple and the resurrection? Oh, friends, every week when we take communion we are reminded of what this sacrifice represents. It's the shed blood of Jesus. It's the broken body of Jesus. It is the replacement of, fulfillment of that sacrificial system. We don't do that anymore because we have Christ and what he has done. And the resurrection, one writer said it like this, it is the exclamation point on the statement that Jesus made on the cross, it is finished. That the resurrection reminds us that everything that Jesus said was true and that he really did have the authority to do this. So when it gets hard this week, let's just guess Thursday morning's gonna be tough. Remember the resurrection. That you have not bought in simply to a bunch of fables that maybe your parents told you but you have staked your life and your eternity and your family on the truest truth available. The risen and real Christ. So let me close with this question tonight. Based on what we've learned, what do you need to hear from this? What is the Spirit of God resting upon you tonight? for your good and for his glory and the building up of this church. For the transformation of your workplace. For the good of your neighbors. Friends, whatever it is, let's go to God and let's ask for his power now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that the lamb is also the lion. That you were faithful and true 
to your promises. That not only is your glory the most important thing in all the world, but in your mercy, you have shared that with us. That we have now been let in on the most important truth in the history of the world. Lord, we are thankful for that. And we pray that as we hear and respond to your word and we see the zeal that you had for your house, that it would revive our hearts, that we would be more fully convinced of the reality and the power of Jesus, that we would confess our sin and freshly receive the good news of the gospel tonight. That we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That we would be changed. That we would be visibly changed in concrete ways in our lives as these truths work themselves down deep into our hearts. Lord, we can't do that on our own. But you can do it. And we ask for what only you can do in our lives in this way. So Lord, as we turn our hearts now to offering and communion and a time of prayer with one another, we pray that you would move among us and that you would help us. That whatever we need from you tonight, from this passage, that you would just press it down deep into us. For some, that's conviction. For others, it's encouragement. For still others, it's a little bit of both. But we ask for a harvest of your word tonight. And we pray all this in Jesus' mighty name.